This is going out today to my own father, Bill Annett, who's 94 years old and still alive and kicking and still writing books, which is what we Annets do, among other things. Well, in the preface of his recent autobiography, which is called The Brothers Gulliver, my dad wrote these words, which brought tears to my eyes when I saw them. This book is dedicated to my son, Kevin, who has surpassed me in every way in which the world keeps score, but more importantly, because he is a happy warrior, a David among Goliaths, who saw suffering and committed his life to relieving it. And well, yeah, that's that's me, folks. <laughs> like Shakespeare said, it is wisdom for a man to know his son. Because when you recognize the truth about someone or about anything in our crazy world, it makes you responsible for that truth and for that person. And that's the difference, I find, between being a slave and being a free man or woman. Slaves will not take responsibility for anything or anyone, starting with themselves. There is always someone else to blame. They rely on others to confront the wrongs and face the dangers that are needed to overthrow tyranny. Slaves always have a thousand different reasons why they have to live alongside all the evil and accommodate themselves to it and stay safely mired on the sidelines. On the other hand, a free soul like my friend and sister Georgina Cameron in Australia cannot accommodate themselves to the evil in our midst, and they know that if they don't stop the shell killers, nobody else will. Georgina's love and outrage has compelled her recently to confront the local Catholic archbishop in her town of Wollongong, confront him to his face, and order him and his church to be gone. Well, if anything good or just has ever been won for humanity, it's because of that kind of love and fire that Georgina shows every day in action. And it's why she's also now being actively hunted by the Sydney police force, a 69-year-old woman who dared to publicly call out the Church of Rome on its murder of children, and she's now paying the price for it. But Georgina's kind of courage and love, unfortunately, is a rare kind of flame these days. It's a fire that I don't encounter very often, and it's almost extinguished among us as a people. So today, as with every show, we're going to try to stoke that flame and fan the trembling embers that are about to go out forever. We're going to help teach all of you who are willing to take responsibility and to learn that it begins with love. And by that, I don't mean a nice thing, a passive sentimental feeling. By love, I mean a power that doesn't allow you to stand idly by and merely talk as madness and tyranny descends and more of the innocent are slaughtered. We begin by reclaiming our hearts from slavery before we ever try reclaiming church buildings and land from genocidal criminals. And speaking of that, for those of you who missed last week's show, the expulsion of the Catholic, Anglican, and United Church of Canada was lawfully reissued on June 12th, the 25th anniversary of our first tribunal into these crimes. And so this past week, all sorts of people are beginning to vacate those illegal trespassers called the Christian Church, um, illegal, that are trespassing on the city of Vancouver, Squamish traditional territory. And the ones who are vacating them are the usual small but growing army of native and homeless people, people not afraid of the child killers in robe. In robe. And, you know, it's kind of a deja vu experience for me because years ago when we started doing that, it was the same down-and-out people who were the ones who took responsibility for saying, no, we won't let you churches get away with killing our people. Your time is over. So the question, of course, is where is everyone else? Why do people find it so easy to live alongside what they know is murderous and wrong and which even threatens their lives, and yet they do nothing about it? That's a mystery that's plagued me my whole life and which I've struggled against and 
my answer to that has just been my own refusal to play along that with that bloody game. And so on our show today, we're going to try answering some of that mystery and help dispel complicity and the numbness that grips the hearts of any of us who live in this murderous system for very long and accommodate to it. To shake yourself free of that accommodation and those facts of death that we call facts of life, ultimately the only thing that will free you is getting kicked in the teeth by the system, but we can help prepare you to know how to respond to that by continuing to break from the sick and murder society and not slip back into your own uh, accomplice state. I'm going to do that today with an interview I just did recently with my fellow fighter in Ireland, Owen Lucas, who's a regular on Here We Stand. Owen is producing the play I wrote called The Land of No One. And The Land of No One is something about, uh, very close to home, it's about a not too fictitious tale of a Canadian doctor who took part in the experiments on native children and the murder of these children in the Nanaimo Indian Hospital. And now his family is finding out about it and the crows are coming home to roost, shit is hitting the fan, however you want to describe it. And it's not just a story of how one Canadian family has to face their own crime, like a metaphor for the whole culture. It's really in a wider sense about how humanity has been exterminated and turned into components of a global machine the ultimate genocide or omnicide. And this doctor, Pierpoint, his name was, was involved in developing the very nanotechnology which is now being aimed at all of us in our thinking, which could account for the fact that people don't seem to act anymore. They're all in a state of numbness. Well, we're going to explore that. And in this interview, Owen and I go into a lot of the details of that and how we can learn from this. And by producing this play, and by the way, this play has been shut down in productions three times, once on Vancouver Island, uh, once in Toronto, once in California, and the, the California folks wouldn't produce it because we criticized vaccinations. Um, being Americans, they were more forthcoming about their opinions than Canadians are. But um, now there's a fourth attempt in Ireland to produce this, and we're going to talk about that on the interview today. If you want to contact us, write to me, angelfire101 at protonmail.com. Follow all of the evidence of this, murderbydecree.com, under, well, the whole website, um, ITCS updates gives you the latest news and republicofcanada.org under breaking news but this interview today I hope it provokes you to tune in again regularly learn from this and go to our archived shows at bbsradio.com slash here we stand this is Kevin Annett Eagle Strong Voice here's the show we're going how's things Oh, you know, eventful. May you live in interesting times, right? <laughs> yeah, that's, that's the Chinese curse, right? <laughs> Blessing you... and curse. <laughs> the, the dialectic. <laughs> yeah. I, f- I feel like there's, there's loads to talk about, Kev. I, I, I don't really know where to start with this one. What, one, one of the uh, things we've been mentioning on the emails is, is your brilliant uh, script here, yeah. this production, uh, theater play, The Land of No One. It's absolutely sensational uh, piece of theatre, I think, just waiting to happen. I'm, I'm, I'm at the lighting direction stage. I'm, I'm looking at it and yeah. how to direct it with the lights. So, but the other thing, uh, which we haven't spoken yeah. about, which I'd really like to, as, as well as your agenda, of course, is um, the, the whistleblower, the exposure of uh, William Coombs and oh, the yeah. security guy, 
who's telling us about 2011 and the assassination order from Charles Windsor. We could jump into that and then come back to the play because it's all connected, you know, and it's, it's so relevant that, uh, including stuff we did this last week in Vancouver, which I want to get into, but, um, well, let's start there. Let's, let's go with that. Well, you mentioned William, it's so close to my heart and everything. And I'd like to talk about this latest thing that came out. Um, May 16th, our court received a notice from a man who claimed he used to be in the security force around Prince Charles at the time. And he said uh, he was called to a meeting in late 2010 in Buckinghamshire by a guy called Major Johnny Thompson, I think was his name, um, who's still a member of King Charles's security retinue. And um, this is posted on our site, but... um, you know, part of his testimony. What he said was that he had received an order, uh, a royal dictate, that there was a a potential terrorist who was trying to assassinate the royal family, and this man had to be taken out. Well, this uh, eyewitness said he was surprised about that because when he learned he was in Canada, he didn't understand why MI6 and its overseas contractors, like the RCMP, weren't delegated this job. But then... um, this Major Thompson said that he was coming directly from Prince Charles. And um, he found out then that it was William Coombs, this native man, this homeless native man. And, um, you know, so, I mean, it was more indication about, you know, something we knew all along that it happened so quickly. The Mounties grab him. He's dead within two days. The nurse says he has all the symptoms of arsenic poisoning, not TB. Uh, which is what the death certificate said. So, I mean, it's another example of what goes on. And they, um, this has been uh, resulted in another uh, summons being sent to so-called King Charles now, who can, like his mother, be tried as an individual under international law, you know, outside so-called crown jurisdiction. One of the fascinating things about that uh, YouTube uh, announcement you did, a press release, yeah. uh, is concerning this guy, Johnny what, what's Thompson. I'll look him up. I'll look up Johnny his Thompson. name. And, yeah. and he, he talks about n- the normal procedure, right? So, so as well as uh, all this information about Charles Wins himself, we're also pulling in on this. Uh, the RCMP, because they would, they would normally take out uh, a native, uh, MI6 is mentioned, and plus the Governor General at the time. Uh, again, excuse me for not remembering the name off the top of my head. Mr. Johnston. Yes. Um, Major Johnny Thompson of the Royal Regiment, security advisor to the prince and then King Charles. And uh, he said, yeah, the the quote from Major Thompson was, the Mounties will handle this one on the ground. We're just setting the wheels in motion. This is a royal directive with the knowledge and consent of the Canadian Governor General, Mr. Johnston. So, I mean, yeah, from the top. So it's it's uh, it's watertight evidence, right? It, you know, from all all angles, really. And you know, you just mentioned the the nurse at the at the hospital who testifies, you know, as as uh, soberly and as um, convincingly as as anybody could that that he was murdered in the hospital. You know, it's it's well, you know, it's like show. what we we talk about in the play. You know, when the last scene of the play where the doc for people listening for the first time. This play, The Land of No One, is set in Canada. Uh, it's about what happens in a Canadian family where the father had been, his name's Oliver Pierpoint. 
he had been a missionary doctor and researcher on the West Coast. He had experimented on and killed native children uh, in this Nanaimo Indian Hospital. It's all based on facts and evidence and real personalities. And his family finds out about it, and his daughter especially, and the shit hits the fan. What happens in a white Canadian family when the crime surfaces within their own family? How do they deal with it or not deal with it? And uh, the, the last scene in the play is Oliver's talking to this Josh, kind of he's a naive Canadian journalist, and uh, he's talking some matter-of-factly about, well, we're in charge, we're never going to be prosecuted, what do we have to fear? And that's, it, that's what I realized soon now uh, that about all this, Owen, is that it's also in the open now, and it's that psychological war technique of saying like the Pope did when he left Canada last summer. He said, yeah, it was genocide i.e., what are you going to do about it? Right. You can't touch me. So it makes everybody feel even weaker and crushed, like, oh, they can get away with all this crime. Kill in plain sight, like they did JFK or whoever, or William Coombs. Kill them in plain sight, flaunt the power you have over people, and it, it's one of the ways people are being kept in line for centuries, right? Yeah, it's that facade, isn't it? That, that blasé facade to say, yeah. yeah, we did it. And it's, it's all um, it's theatre. So much of it is theatre, right? Ironically, yeah. uh, but the play—you're well, you in, know, the, you're in the land of theatre. There, you know. I was thinking, you know, when we were talking about you, I, I understand you've been reading it and have readings with some of your students, and uh, you know, it—it—it's it, getting the, the reception that I, that Irish playwright Sean O'Casey he he wrote some really controversial plays that the Irish didn't like because he was looking more realistically at who the Irish were, right? He even had prostitutes as characters, stuff that the Irish didn't like at all. And so when they first produced his plays in uh, in the Abbey Theatre in Dublin, there was a riot. They had to have police outside. People were trying to get in and shut down the play. Well, I mean, it's the same thing happened. We're now in the fourth attempt to produce this. The first three attempts have all been shut down, two in Canada, one in America. In America, they said they couldn't produce it because we had criticized, vac criticized vaccinations. And... Um, you know, but in Canada, it's just shut down every time without, like we did a reading the other day, the actors have all vanished. Can't, vanished. It, like, oh. happened before. We don't hear from them. They all just drop out all of a sudden, right? Okay. I've, I've got a venue over here, this uh, interesting place that, that I've got uh, as a as, as a theater. It's, it's not a theater, but uh, they do do productions there. But I haven't, uh, I haven't shown the, the guy the script yet. So, you know, that, that could be a stumbling block. Well, I'm curious. Uh, but one of the scenes that sprung to mind just now chatting is, yep. is um, the, the hypnosis scene. You mentioned vaccines, right? And, and so there's, there's so much in there. It is absolutely jam-packed with relevance uh, to today. Um, you know information about about genocide and and how it's conducted and and the yeah. uh, the use of of these injections the MK Ultra stuff too is, is fascinating and and so we've got this this main character Pierpoint and, and is that his real name Have you changed the names at all or changed the it... name but it's based on a it's based on a real person. Okay, yep. that was an interesting question I had. Is yep. is you know how how, how much uh, uh, change have you made to I I, I certainly realised that, that these were all characters or individuals well, that exist. He, his name was George Darby, and yeah. he worked at both the Nanaimo Hospital and the R.W. Large United Church Hospital in Bella Bella, which is up the coast. It's a native village. And, and um, yeah, go ahead. This hospital is, is uh, int integral, integral to, to, the, to, the, to the whole uh, play, right? It's, it's yeah, and, you know, I, 
I think, Owen, this is why it keeps getting shut down, because it is so bang on. It is so truthful, because everything you read in there is based on live testimonies from people who went through it. Like you mentioned hypnosis scene. The native character is a woman called Sheila Ambrose in the play, and she was raped and, and experimented on as a little girl by this doctor. And uh, then now she's trying to sue him. And uh, in under hypnosis with her psychiatrist, she's reliving what happened when she arrived in the Nanaimo Indian Hospital, seeing dead children on gurneys, uh, being kept in the same room as the dead bodies, um, being injected with things that were making her sick. She was vomiting. They were in using her as a, a test subject and drug tests and all sorts of things. It's all true. It's all based on, on what actually happened, but Canadians are, you know, got the blindfold over their eyes and ears and they just don't want to hear this stuff. And they know it's dangerous to talk about it too. That's the point, right? Yeah. Wow. It's, 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 uh, it turns you just reading it, you know, and yeah. with my directorial hat on, I've done a, a bit of yeah. theater directing over the, over the years. Uh, right. I see it. I see it so clearly. That that scene, you know, uh, that hypnosis scene where, where she's reliving it. And, and is this submittable evidence? You know, back back in in the uh, the the lawful uh, side of things. So this uh, yep. uh, hypnosis really happened, and was that therefore recorded and, and submitted to uh, the woman to the who uh, her name was Ethel Wilson. She had gone through that at the R.W. Large Hospital at the hands of Dr. Darby. Uh, she got pregnant, and they weren't allowed to leave the reservation unless you had a green card, like a vaccine pass now, right? They, this was back in the 50s. She said um, she got pregnant, and she wanted to leave because the Dr. Darby uh, told her that she couldn't have any children because she had married a traditional man, and they sterilized any traditional person. If you spoke your language, if you didn't go to church, You'd get a red tag and had to go to the hospital and would get sterilized if you were a traditional person. That's out-and-out genocide, preventing births on a targeted group. Uh, so she tried to get off the reserve. The police brought her back, the Mounties, and then she was taken in. Darby delivered her baby, but then sterilized her, snipped her tubes uh, when she was under, and removed all her gold teeth. Right? I mean, it's I didn't put it all in there. It was just too much. But the point is that... The, I remember when Essa was telling me this at our tribunal in 1998. And by the way, we celebrated the 25th anniversary of that just this Monday with some other actions I'll tell you about. But um, the, um, uh, Ethel, Ethel said she was in tears even so many years later because it destroyed her life and that of her family and Darby got away with it. As a matter of fact, the United Church still lauds this guy as this wonderful missionary who did great work among the Indians. That's the official line put out still about this murderer right yeah i mean you know you look at you look at these uh what do they call it the the new year's honors list where they make the the knights and the members of the british empire and this kind of stuff it's you know it's the first place to look if you're trying to find criminals right it's it's the inversion and and like Like you said about yeah like a saint in the catholic church you canonize (laughs) the the criminals criminals need to play Yeah. yeah Like uh, Jimmy Savile, right? He was he was a papal knight right. and uh, and a royal knight. You know, you, you couldn't get more decorated for the for, for the intensity of, of the criminal that he was. Well, you know, Owen, I hope I really hope you go ahead and try to produce it because there's nothing more powerful than live theater, interactive theater, because you know the times where it was read, people were so gobsmacked. They were just sitting there. They didn't know how to react. You could see the whole world was being changed by this, and that's what we want to want to evoke. I'm like I'm a great follower of Bertolt Brecht 
theater, right? And his method of social commentary, engaging the audience. They're not spectators. They're part of it. They're part of this drama as we all are, right? Yeah. So that'd be fantastic if you could do that. Uh, I'd love to. I'd love to. Uh, it's funny you mentioned Brecht. Uh, when I was 17 in school, one of the first plays yeah. I, I was ever involved with was uh, The Resistible Rise of Arturo Ui. You know, looking Great at that. Play. You know, Great play. You know, oh, the yeah. Mafia Rise. About Hitler. About yeah, Hitler, but using metaphor. the Chicago gangsters as the metaphor for the Nazis. Yeah. Yeah. It's great. The Cauliflower Trust was it similar to this. You know, about, about the vegetables right. and the protection money. Oh, look, Givoli, oh, yeah. the assassins, he's had to burn the, the stalls or, you know, the, the businesses of, of the other people in the, in the Cauliflower Trust, right? But it's just, yeah, like say, a metaphor for Hitler. Oh, brilliant, brilliant. Play. The Reichstag yeah. fire, yeah. Uh, yeah. Another, another scene that really springs to mind uh, that I saw so clearly, you know, as I was reading it, was um, the, the politician uh, receiving the 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 bag of the children's remains. Uh, yeah, t- tell us tell us about the the background to that scene. It seems well, they're digging up the graves, and it's so relevant now because the the Canadian government, if you remember, it was all over the world news. The Kamloops gravesite, right? After so many years of us identifying these graves, they finally seem to be responding. But what they did is they went in, staged a an apparent dig, but they never let anyone in to see what they were finding. These are like the criminals digging up the graves they created, like the Mounties and the church people are going in and looking in. They announced after a few weeks, oh, we only found a few remains of of about 215 children. So that was designed to shift the number away from 60,000 that we had proved over many years to 215. And the whole, it was an enormous spin. And nowadays people are saying, oh, there weren't really mass graves. They've set back the clock to people not even believe in there are graves. So I say, when somebody said that to me, I said, well, then where did so many children go if they weren't buried? Doesn't that raise the question, what happened to the bodies? They probably burned them up. But the point is they've been digging up the graves for many years. So we, in the play, we talk about that. We, we have the, um, these are voices off stage. There's only five actual characters and some voices. And the, the senior politician in Ottawa is saying, you know, you've got to get the prime minister needs these graves done away with. And the guy's saying, but they're all over Vancouver Island. We don't know where they all are. Um, you know, and so, I mean, it's it's kind of behind the scenes what goes on when they're dealing with their dirty laundry, right? Well, this, this is why it's a, a brilliant, brilliant script, I think. It's because on the one hand, you've got a real uh, close characterization of, of the, the dynamics of this family. Pierpont and his wife, his main character, and his, his daughter, and, and how that sort of time period since he was in the thick of this with the MK Ultra and the, and the hospital, right. and, and how you know the, the time has, has kind of changed his, um, his character. Let's just keep it general. But as well as that, we're, we're pulling in, or you're, you're pulling in, uh, you know the, the hypnosis scene at the hospital, the politicians uh, with the the, uh, the people covering up the digs, uh, and then I think you, the scene you were just referring to there is where Pierpont's facing the the audience with a with a spotlight on him, and there's a it really makes me think of 1984 or perhaps the Clockwork Orange, where he's he's there's nobody there, he's on his own, but he's answering to this auditorium voice that's Big Brother, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Really, really powerful stuff, I think. Well, and and when you look at the conclusion of the play, it's so relevant because he's basically saying, well, the Native people were this 
passing group. They weren't going to live long anyway. They were needed at the time. But the bigger project here is about all of you. We are creating a controlled human race. We, through the, the, the vaccines and the injection with the five-point microchip, we're making everybody in, into a new species, an extension of a machine. And they won't have their own thoughts. They won't have their own feelings. They'll be programmed what to believe at any moment. And, hey, man, that's going on. That's, as we speak, that's the omnicide directed at all of us. So I, I can see why they wouldn't want this stuff coming out and people even thinking on those terms. Because I don't know what your experience is, Owen, but whenever you try talking about that, people shut right down. They don't want to accept that horror, that possibility that in another few years, you and I may not have this conversation because no one would ever understand it. No one would be programmed to be able to listen, right? Right. Yeah, it's getting all the nanotech is, is getting yeah. phenomenal. But but you mentioned uh, we did, we did a little read through uh, with some students as, as you mentioned, oh, yeah. and and uh, you, you prompted me just there what you're saying was that there was for me I, I I'd read it already and 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 so I was very much uh, excited about the the methodology of, of producing it. Yeah, like I say, lighting and, and this kind of thing, and and stage uh, direction and props and things. But the students, I, I could really feel. No, no one, no one said this outright. But the the, the energy, uh, the feeling in 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 the read through was. I don't. I don't think we should be reading this. You know, is is this allowed? Are we, are we allowed to? Really, there was there was almost a, an authority aspect. We don't have permission right. to to get into this stuff. Uh oh, I'm feeling a little uncomfortable because this sounds like it's true. Well, I announced it was true. <laughs> so, so, so that created that sort of uneasiness perhaps of, during the I don't doubt it. I don't doubt it because it's rocking the whole world, their sense of reality. And uh, I remember, you know, a teacher years ago when they first introduced the iPads and that they said, the teacher told the students, put your iPads away. And about half of them did, but the other half, couldn't they they looked like you're about to rip their arm off they held on to it and they couldn't part with it and at that point he realized there's something going on here we don't understand about the yeah. way it's intermeshing with the human energy grid and everything and it, it's becoming part of these kids and so i'm not surprised at all that react that way but we got to go cold turkey that's the whole purpose of that play to alert uh, people to the real danger and to get out of it well we still can right yeah, there's there's an addictive aspect to it. There's there's yeah. certainly um you know you you hear reports of of these screens being able to admit uh, frequencies that are that are very compelling, addictive. It's, it's, it's fascinating the the science that's that's coming through now. You know yeah. the connection with the the electromagnetic frequencies. We got Elon Musk with SpaceX and his satellites with electromagnetic frequencies to the planet. Then we got the nanotech, you know the, the Neuralink where he wants to create inf- interfaces. Neuralink yep. is his other company. You know, how is this all meshing together in terms of the? It's all uh, electromagnetic frequencies and, and nanotech. I think that we're going to well, eventually arrive at, at the knowledge of. Uh, that's but, yeah. Go ahead, sir. I, I was going to prompt, prompt you for the for the twenty fifth uh, anniversary. Uh, news. Well, we last Monday we celebrated. But I hold held a press conference and we did some actions at the churches downtown. Uh, on the audio part on the radio, they won't be able to see this, but this is a, uh, for the video part, this is a um, banishment order from, um, if you remember, Chief Capilano banished these churches years ago and made me his legal agent to enforce the banishment. 
And the police respected that because it was filed in the BC Supreme Court. It's why they always stood back and didn't interfere when we were occupying these churches. Well, this is a reissuing of the banishment order, and it says, uh, warning, no trespassing. This church building has been publicly reclaimed as reparations for crimes committed by this church. You may face arrest if you enter these premises. So that's in accordance with the common law order, keep Capilano's order. And we've taken this. It was really fun doing this. We went into the churches and told them this. We left this with the, you know, the church officials and that. We also went to the Vancouver police and left a copy and said, you guys are obligated to enforce this order and to help us evict 274 Catholic, Anglican, and United Churches from Greater Vancouver. We have the power to do that. It's a matter of finding the numbers now of people willing to do that and enforce it. So we're going around, and I'll tell you, the best recruiting ground for this is the downtown areas and the slum areas where all these homeless Native people are, because they're the ones who did the last time. And we're having great fun talking to these folks, saying, look, any Catholic, Anglican, United Church, you can go in and seize now, sleep there at night because it's been forfeited under international law. So, you know, um, it's it's just exciting. We've said to the city council, uh, you've got to revoke the licenses for these churches. And if you don't, you're colluding in their crimes. So it's kind of getting people to think in that new way that, well, they're not legitimate. They don't have the right to be here. And we're colluding in the crime if we don't stop them. So, I mean, it's it's part of the whole continuation of what we've been doing for so long, right? And you mentioned a little earlier on, you know, about the bluffing, the the, the Pope grandstanding saying, you know, yeah. uh, it's genocide. What are you going to do about it? But it's, it's it's the poker game bluff that's going on because what's bubbling up from the surface, right. you know, grassroots stuff over here in Ireland. There's uh, maybe I'll cut it in. It's only a minute and a half. Uh, there's a politician who's saying, yeah, we're going to have to take away uh, your civil liberties, your, your the constitutional laws of freedoms and expression. And, and again, it's, it's a grandstanding bluff job because they know that they need so desperately to clamp down on we the people. When you think about it, all law, all legislation is about the restriction of freedom. That's exactly what we're doing here is we are restricting freedom, but we're doing it for the common good. You will see throughout our constitution, yes, you have rights, but they are restricted for the common good. Everything needs to be balanced. And if your views on other people's identities go to make their lives unsafe, insecure, and cause them such deep discomfort that they cannot live in peace, then I believe that it is our job as legislators to restrict those freedoms for the common good. It's what they call raising, you know, flying a, a trial balloon. You say something and then watch, monitor how people react to it. It's testing and experimenting all the time to see how much they can get away with and when and how to do it, right? We talk about that all the time in order of war, right? you got to probe the enemy constantly to, to understand their strength. Well, they probe us all the time to find where we're at. We have to do the same to them, right? Which is what we're doing with these orders and confronting the institutions over this stuff, right? Yeah, yeah. I'm... I'm really interested currently uh, in, the, in the media situation you know i feel like the the mainstream yeah. media is is basically the busted flush now you know the uh, the ship has sunk if you like yeah. and and we're now at this interesting sort of second wave it really reminds me we, we speak now sometimes you and i of of uh you know history and, and other flashpoints um of revolution throughout the times and that's uh russian revolution the end of the 1918 was it 
they, they had two, right? And, and so after the, the first one uh, occurred, there was, there was a second one in the pipeline, uh, Prince Lavov, right. I think it was. And, and I, I get the feeling there's an interesting parallel and comparison here with, with how the media is working. That I think we've almost had the first one. The, the BBC is, is an absolute, uh, you know, sixes and sevens completely uh, down the swanee swanee. Its, its ratings have dropped down, I think, USA similarly. And I'm sure the, uh, the CBC in, in Canada is uh, dropping like a stone too. So, so in, in come the, the second wave, if you like, the, the, the next line of defense to hold, hold the line because of perception and, uh, you know, the, the facade of truth being controlling the narrative is the phrase we, we've spoken about this a few times. Right. But that's really coming to a flashpoint, I think, with these, well, these shields and faux people, um, you know. Oh, yeah. I mean. When you think about it, the very fact that they have to put so much uh, effort into pretending they're in charge and that there'll be a dire consequence if you post them shows how weak they are. That's like Sun Tzu would say. That's a sign of weakness. Yeah. And um, it's and you know that famous quote from the CIA training manual that says you can never control you you cannot stop revolutions. You can only guide their flow. Okay. And. And so they bring in, like you say, people to suddenly appear that they're on the right side and follow me, follow the Pied Piper over here, you know. And uh, it's funny the way Trump, he's the first president in U.S. history to be criminally convicted because he stole all these national security documents after he was president and literally got them loaded up in his house in Florida and just stole all these these documents and feeding them to God knows who for his own business interests, right? And um, yet he's using that as a springboard to say, poor persecuted me, vote for me. He's going to run. If, if he's in prison, he's going to run for president. Uh, right. And, and they're, creating the, they're creating the rebel hero out of him. It's Absolutely. Right. The, yeah. The big these, spin. yeah. Right. They're, they're agents, right? Trump, uh, right. Elon Musk, you know, uh, this guy right. Tucker Carlson, I think, is, is really interesting, too, on that front. They're, they're this little team, they're look, looking like perhaps they're the Robin Hood band of men, merry men or whatever. And, and they're being pitched as, as the people that we need to get behind if we're, you know, part of the, um, the, the paradigm shift uh, team. Right? But similarly over here, or in Britain, yeah. uh, we got the Boris Johnson thing, who's similarly, just like Trump, Getting in trouble in inverted commas with with the uh, the legal fraternity, but again, right. it's, it's it's another soap opera script, you know that. The... You know what? I, what I find really unfortunate in that so many people are focused on that and they don't want to focus on each other. Like you know, we had that experience setting up the local assemblies, republic assemblies, and that people just don't haven't developed the ability to look at them to themselves for their own answers. And to look at a group of people saying, we can pass this law, we can govern ourselves here, always looking vicariously to somebody else. And until we break that, and I guess that was another reason they were writing that play, you know, um, to show what happens if you don't act in your own name and with your own thoughts, then you're going to be led down the trail by yet another, you know, group or person who's going to just screw you in the end, right? I've had a really interesting uh, week, 10 days just gone. I've uh, had a bit of time off and, and traveled south and had a, had a look at a, a really interesting uh, educational um, uh, a school. Let's call it a school. And it's it's completely the opposite to what 
regular mainstream schools are like and that the students have as much um, democratic input as the adults. Oh, yeah. And so you you see just starkly, I've, I've seen this starkly just now over the last few days, how that um, dependence on you know, an echelon of authority is, is instilled and uh, created because of the education system. Because oh, yeah. uh, the, the students I've, I've just met recently, you know, I, I'm, I'm a six foot two uh, large male adult and, and even seven or eight year olds would, would speak to me completely on the level. You know, oh, yeah. and, and if, if I was getting something wrong because I was new to the environment, they had absolutely no qualms about letting me know that that's not how it's done. This is how it's done. And, you know, that's cool. it, it, was, it was so refreshing to see w- how one generation I imagine to myself, imagine if this was comprehensive, you know, across the board and that there was an education system in place that uh, respected, honoured uh, autonomy, sovereignty and, you know, self, uh, self-worth. The world would be turned upside down. In, in, in a generation. In, in, in oh, yeah. Years. Well, you know, it, it, the thing that got me on my own radical road was I went, I was in a high school like that. I was in a free school and we designed our own courses. We had student assemblies where parents, teachers, everyone, staff, the janitor was there, us, we all sat down and worked out how we wanted to run the school. So naturally, when you're raised like that, you don't tolerate bullshit around you. You And that's why the family and schools have been traditionally where you keep people as slaves. You teach them that submission at a young age and they don't know anything else. So we want to do the opposite. And that's why one of the things that people did prioritize in our assemblies uh, and the two issues that come up all the time is health and children, you know, being healthy, raising your own food and having your own school system, parents designing their own curriculum with the kids. And that comes time and again. So I think that's a really important project to be working on big focus of our work. Right. Is that. Yeah. The, the, the word you hear in education is, is empowerment. Right. And and I've, I've, I've read about these kind of free schools uh, where we're, and children have the space to to grow so that their own natural essence is allowed to come forward yeah. as opposed to a conformity program, which is what most schools clearly are. You know, you get into the history of it and you you find back in uh, South Germany, Bavaria, they were quite open about the philosophy being to create factory workers and, and obedient soldiers, right? They would, you know, march. Well, no, no, the, the, the Rockefeller General Education Board, the Rockefeller Foundation in the early 20th century, started funding all the universities and schools and changed their curriculum to a technical. They got rid of liberal arts, critical thinking, and they streamed everybody, especially working class kids, into the technical trades. And and old John D. Rockefeller had that infamous quote, I want workers who work, not think, right? Yeah. And it's been like that ever since. The whole education system is streamed that way. So we got to pull them out, <laughs> pull them out of that whole sick thing, you know? Yeah, yeah. Well, this 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 is what's bubbling up, I think, because in, here in Ireland, and I'm sure it, it translates all across the the world, is that people are seeing through it. You know, these these education curriculums are let's just keep a general, you know, not not doing the best for kids to say the very least, right? And and you know, you see reports all over the place where people are saying stay away from state public schools and you know start home schools, free schools, right. et etc. Et uh, the government's trying to get in that in a big way, though. In Canada, they offer incentives to 
to parents to homeschool. They give you a couple of thousand bucks to, to start it, but you got to report back to them what you're doing. So they're always trying to get their fingers in the pie, right? We could not right. tell them, like, never register your kids that are newborn. Just get out of the system, right? And on that one, now I was going to ask you, I was interested to know about uh, North, North America, how what's happening with that. But uh, with with the economics, there's this idea that there's going to be a, a universal basic in, income, a UBI. So again, that carrot in front of the donkey for the public, you get 1,600 pounds if you uh, join in with this universal yes. basic instinct, <laughs> right. basic instinct, basic income uh, scheme. And, you know, this is, this is just uh, getting that digital currency. Uh, well, it, on, it's, on a, it's a con. It's a con because don't forget they, in, in when uh, COVID hit in Canada, they said you can get what's called CERB, uh, which is 2000 bucks a month. We'll just give it to you because you can't go to work. So we're going to give it to you. And at the time they said, it's just a gift. Yeah. Now, and I this happened to a friend of mine because I know directly from this. Now they're lying and they're saying, oh, no, no, it wasn't gift. It was a loan. And you owe us this much interest. And now so they're starting to send people bills for the money they were given. And it, it's not only keeping people on a leash, but it's getting them more in debt. So undoubtedly, it'll be a similar system. And it's not for everyone. It's only for people who, you know, kiss their ass and take the shot or whatever. Right. It's just being on the Indian reservation again, right? Okay, and, and that reservation template, you know, right. again and again and again, we've got these 15-minute cities, and uh, there's a supermarket in London, I heard there's Scandinavia, there's the same thing, you know, when you see it rolled out all over the world at the same time, you know, it's the, the, the global agenda. But these uh, QR code with the apps in the supermarket, so if you want food, you have to be right. totally on board with the with the digital uh, idea. So there's no humans, right? So you don't need people anymore. Train stations, uh, supermarkets, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, well, you, you just you just zap your your phone to get through the barriers into the supermarket, and everything well automatically. Or you just get or you get people together and kick down the barriers and take the food, right? I mean, this is what I mean. Like direct action, training people in direct action is the way to go. It, you can just go so far in the system, and then you got to push back, right? And, and that's the wake up. You know, this is this is the the double edged sword of it all. Is that people are saying, "Well, hang on a second. There's a lot of humans on this planet, and w there's nothing for us to do any longer. So, what's going to happen next?" <laughs> you know, yes. Yeah. Well, well, it was that statistic I think in one of my books I've, I wrote about. Uh, in uh, by 2010, only 150 corporations owned the world economy, but they only employed less than 0.1% of the workforce. So in other words, 99.9% .9 of, the, of the working class is now redundant to those big owners of the economy. So what do you do with them? Well, right. take a guess, right? What do they always do? Wars well, and genocide, right? And yeah. we're just outright extermination. All right. We're, we're, we're back to uh, the land of no one. land of no one. Which, which oh. by the way, that term, um, it's that it's got double meanings, but uh, because uh, the original Latin term terra nullius or land of no one was created by, by lawyers back in the Roman Empire and the Vatican picked it up saying, whenever you, before you invade an area, <clears throat> you declare it nullus. There's nobody there because uh, if there was people there already, you had to respect their laws and traditions. You say, no, they just don't exist. And that's why to a Roman Catholic, they say you don't exist until you're a baptized Catholic. Prior to that, we can do anything we want to you. 
That's why Bergoglio in Canada said, yeah, it was genocide, as in, yeah, we can kill anybody we like, you know, uh, praising, you know, missionaries who kill people on on mask. We're inspired by his zeal. I mean, you don't exist unless you're in their club. And that term meant if you become like you become like that yourself, you look around and, hey, there's nobody here anymore because when you're all part of the machine, you lose your human identity. And I, I think that that's one of the messages in the play, right? And so the title then, The Land of No One, connects with, I remember speaking with you a, a while back, uh, the word extermination is connected with the land, right? Right. The, um, no one means there, there's nobody there to get in the way of our invasion of it, but there won't be anyone there either once we finish it with it. Because don't forget, like, do you remember, I, I, you weren't raised in North America, of course, but there were, in schools here, you're always given this this little meme, this line that says, uh, before the whites came, it was virgin territory. That always talked about this virgin land. Well, in other words, it's empty. There's nobody there. In fact, there are millions of people here, but they, they've never existed in our psyche, native people. You know, and, Animals. Right, non-people and... You know, I mean, it's just you look in the mirror now and you say, well, maybe that's what we've all become <laughs> living in the system. It's uh, it dehumanizes you. Right. And then it's a double edged sword, right? Because if they uh, turn code or, or re- re- renege on their history and their tradition and they become a Christian and, and get baptized, then that is consenting to the authority of canon law in the church you can become a slave the the canon law said if you baptize as one of theirs uh you can't be killed but the best you can hope for is to be a slave uh to work on one of their plantations and that that's the most you could achieve so again like in canada under the indian act you're a ward of the crown on reservation so the best you can achieve is that slave status as a child you can be killed at any point and there's no legal repercussion, right? And that's why in the land of no one, the, he said the best test subjects were were in Indians because you can do whatever you want to them in Canada. I kill them and, the, and you're not guilty of anything, right? I mean, I, and I've seen that so many times. I mean, when I first started working down there, there was a, a case of a, a native man, homeless man, shot 13 times by right. two cops in an alley. That, uh-huh. that means they emptied their guns, reloaded, and they used them as target practice. They didn't even get reprimanded. Because he said, oh, he was threatening us with a knife, right? 13 shots. <laughs> it's like daily life here, right? And, and then back to, to your recent uh, video with Charles Windsor and, and the, uh, the security guy. Yeah. Talking about under normal circumstances, the, 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 the native, I think his quote is, the Red Indian would get wiped out or... or uh, taken off the board, off the chessboard, I presume, uh, by the RCMP. That's yeah. the normal procedure, right? It's, right. That's, that's what usually happens. This officer states that in late December of 2010, he participated in a special operations meeting in Buckinghamshire to plan the murder of William Coombs. The meeting was called by Major Johnny Thompson of the Royal Regiment, who was the security advisor to the then Prince of Wales, Charles Windsor. According to the South David, quote, Major Thompson told us he was appearing on behalf of His Majesty the Prince of Wales, who had ordered the elimination of a foreign assassin threatening the royal family. I was surprised at the time that such an order was not being handled through MI6 and its overseas contractors. 
I was even more surprised when the target was a Canadian Red Indian, since normally the RCMP have jurisdiction over such operations. When one of my colleagues raised this point with Major Thompson, he replied, quote, The Mounties will handle this one on the ground. We're just setting the wheels in motion. This is a royal directive with the knowledge and consent of the Canadian Governor General, Mr. Johnston, unquote. Well, that's what they've done since they, they were created in 1873 to clear off, and it said this in the original RCMP charter. They were called the Northwest Mounted Police then, but it said their job was to clear all Indians from 50 miles on either side of the Canadian Pacific Railway, which was linking up the country, and um, due to whatever, any force necessary. Well, that was a blank check for them to go on a hunting party and just wipe out all the natives. And the residential schools, death camps were the final touch on that. Right. They were kind of the final blow on that design to, you know, exterminate the next generation, which they pretty much did. Right. Yeah. And then the question is, what, what do they do, you know, with with the the surplus and inverted commas humans that they're clearing off the land? Well, you know, there's the genocide aspect, obviously. And a lot of them come into the residential schools, particularly the, cho- the, the children come into the residential schools. And then oh, that generates money. There's, there's business to be made from generating the the funds to run the schools, right? And charities come in then and this kind of thing. But then there's there's the, the wider international trafficking. And there's a really, uh, I think, important film about to be released July the 4th called The Sound of Freedom. Uh, the guy who played um, Jesus in The Passion of the Christ, the Mel Gibson film, Jim Cavanaugh. estimated 2 million children are trafficked every year and we can help them sound of freedom is based on a true story about real life heroes saving kids from the dark world of child trafficking we know this is heartbreaking and it hurts to look at but the first step in helping these children is hearing their story not enough people know this problem exists and even fewer people are willing to do anything about it our goal is to inspire 2 million people to attend the film's opening weekend to represent the two million trafficked children around the world. To spread the word, Angel Studios set up a pay-it-forward program where you can pay for someone else's ticket who might not otherwise see it. If the ticket price is stopping you from attending, claim your free ticket at angel.com freedom. Sound of Freedom opens the week of July 4th. Every parent, every adult, and every teenager in America should be there to see it if millions of us come together today to see this film we could propel the movement to help save millions of children around the world and you can send the message that god's children are no longer for sale so so that this film has been obstructed over many years now uh from being uh released because it's it's loaded similar to your play i think uh with a lot of truths and uh awareness information for the general public and it 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 just shows the numbers you know the the millions and millions of children involved in international business international industrial trafficking sex work oh, yeah, slaves etc etc et but also the the ritual abuse of of these uh secret societies too must be must be mentioned i think Oh, well, along with arms and drugs, human trafficking is the major one of the major industries in the world. Children are a big part of that. But, I mean, to give an example, talking about the play and, and just trying to get it promoted with people, 
Uh, I don't have like Shona Casey had in Ireland. I don't have a Lady Gregory to sponsor me. I need a patron, right? On your own, it's almost impossible to do this, right? Uh, It's totally grassroots. But when I say to people, well, there was a death quota in the residential schools. We've seen it referred to in the punishment logs they kept. We've seen it referred to in correspondence. They had to kill off between a third and a half of the children every year. That was mandatory. And, you know, tell that to Canadians, they say, well, what, sounds like we're Nazis. And I said, we were, right? Still well, are. The, 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 <laughs> right, the, the, the death rates in, in the, the schools, the, the children death camps, were higher than the Nazis camps in... Yeah, Auschwitz was a work camp, primarily. So they needed a lot of slave labor. It was next to Birkenau, which was a big industrial complex for the Nazis. Uh, their death rate was around 25%. You had more than double that on average. In the rest schools, in the de- I call them death camps because that's what they were. But um, the the whole cover that's been created around that is massive, and it shows you how willing people are to go along with the big lie. Because you know, uh, how many people really want to acknowledge what's been going on in their backyard and still is, right? Yeah, yeah. You know, Lady Gray, you mentioned. I, I finally just. A week or two before you you brought her up, uh, I, yeah. I, I was I was at the um, the place there, the estate, uh, and and all, all the initials uh, are carved in on the tree there. And and one of the one of the great things I think about this play, you know, if, if people are thinking about getting a theatre group together to do it, is I don't think it's difficult to produce. Like I say, five five characters, you know, yeah. you, you you perhaps want to. Uh, a projector screen to to show the, the news footage uh, with, right. with a voiceover, this kind of thing. You know, the, the lighting I don't think has to be anything uh, too much more uh, technical than than a couple of spotlights and some and some floodlights. Uh, it's it's a it's a living room and it's perhaps yeah. some some conference rooms and and the uh, you, you perhaps could do with a, um, a hypnosis. Uh, bed to loan but you know e- easily done right you know e- easily adaptable so so this this venue uh that i've got in mind that's you know still still early days fled- fledgling stages uh i i think we'd, we'd have the audience central and then the the different uh scenes to the left to the right uh to give oh, us a bit brilliant. of time to love that yeah it's, I, I think it'd be great i think it'd be great well, you know, of... you're making me want to get on a plane and come over to Ireland, which well, I may very well do. Well, like, I'm going on, uh, after the summer, like in the fall, I've been asked to do kind of speaking, my usual speaking tour thing. And the Norwegians and the Swedes wanted me to come over there and do some stuff in the fall. So I said, hell, let's do it. I'm. I, we've talked about that happening in the fall with, with some of our other friends. But uh, I would love to do that with you. That'd be great. Oh, would be brilliant. No, it's very exciting. Time. And, yeah, and I, I think uh, I, I, I think it would be would be really uh, I'd, I'd feel feel great if I if I was the first person to get a production of it done <laughs> because it's, well, it's so difficult, right? What would you say? Go for it. I officially close down. <laughs> approve. Yeah, I'm in the best place in Southern Ireland. If it's going to be anywhere, Southern Ireland yeah. will have it. <laughs> yeah, oh, so yeah. tradition, like you say, with Casey. I saw his. Uh, like I, say, I saw it on the carved in the tree. I saw his signature. Where was that in? Uh... County Clare. Oh, in County Clare. Yeah, not far from Gort, uh, near the Galway border. Uh, Beautiful up there. Clip some more. Yeah, we we had a cup of tea and a walk around the grounds. I think she must have been a pretty wealthy woman, this grey woman. Oh, yeah. She knew Yates, and uh, she was his patron as well. 
Yeah, he's on the tree. Both of them, those are those brothers, weren't they? They were two yates. Yeah, poor uh, William Butler, he proposed to several different women, and he even proposed to their mother, and they all rejected him. <laughs> poor guy. <laughs> I can relate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, surprising. You know, you think he probably had uh, quite a bit of a profile, being such a brilliant, brilliant writer. Yeah, you never know. I mean... <laughs> Life's that way, but uh, it's so uh, it's so great to hear that there's that that possibility because I mean it's uh, you got to kind of work in from the margins on this stuff, right? You never know when the opportunity is going to come up, and you got to go for it when it does, right? So. Yeah, yeah, but it's it's you know it's it's straightforward. It's it's jam packed with content in terms yeah. of characters and yeah. uh, the plot and and the, the details. But in terms of production, I, I think I think it's, it's, it's nice and straightforward. It's it's not a, you know, you, you don't you don't need special effects or anything anything too intricate well, like that. I wrote it that way. I tried yeah. to keep it really simple and basic because I was hoping I knew that no major theater group would pick this up ever. So it had to be local community or just individuals doing it, right? And we had that experience in the in the downtown part of Vancouver. There used to be a, a group called Headlines Theater. And they would take an issue and they'd go in in a very Brechtian manner and meet with the people who the play was about. Like it was about homelessness that said, I want homeless and said, what do you want to see in this play? And would you act it out? And would you be part of the play? And they kept changing the script depending on what the people were telling them. And I mean, it's just that amazing worth. It's not separate from life anymore. Right. Theater. And, and the other possibility that's crossed my mind as, as I've been thinking about it is, is you know, everyone's got cameras these days iphones or whatever it is you know mobiles right you could do a film so easily with it you know you just, you just need a, a living room and a you know this sort of thing and it would be so easy to let, let's That's say for even... example that the the, the the venue doesn't happen for me plan, plan b is is turn into a film easy peasy absolutely as a matter even take one scene sit down maybe the last one of him talking with the reporter whatever and film it and use it as a promo Right. Just get it out all over to say, look, we got to do this. This play is being targeted, and that's a, that's kind of a drawing card in itself. This play that's been shut down three yeah. times already, right? right? In production, we got to the point <laughs> of reading it. We had directors and everything, and bang, they all vanished. Yeah, you know, it, ma- it, it makes was, it really attractive. It's just, it's sexy, right? Because it's been from them again. they're doing the marketing for you. <laughs> oh, that's good. You got to. Um, it'll help it when people know something is blacklisted and everything. It's more attractive, I think. Right, definitely. You know. Yeah. Hey, uh, we probably ought to come to a close here, Kev. Uh, you want to keep right. it for, 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 the, for the hour? For, for yeah, we'll play it on Sunday, and we'll talk to you tomorrow about this new project. I love yeah. it. Thank you, Owen. Keep it posted. Brilliant, brilliant, brilliant script. I recommend yeah. it to everybody. Get get all of this and put it on. Brilliant, brilliant play. <laughs> yeah, you can get it through uh, Amazon or through me. Um, Angelfire101 at protonmail.com. Yeah, get a copy, everybody. Magic. Thanks, Kev. Thanks, Take Owen. Care. Talk soon. Take care.